guest today on Vital Voices is Jonesboro, Tennessee historian Angie Fellers Mason, who takes us on a tour of the old Rocky Hill Cemetery. It's a place full of stories about the cholera epidemic of 1873, about race relations in Tennessee's oldest town, and about ways to preserve the past. And welcome to Vital Voices. Thanks for having me, Fred. Let's talk about the cholera epidemic of the 1870s and how it got into Jonesboro in the first place. That summer in 1873, uh, you do have a cholera epidemic. It's moving through the South. You're going to have several such epidemics in the late 1800s, mostly due to you know, sanitation um, or lack thereof. And the one in 1873 uh, comes directly through Jonesboro. And the people know about it when it gets to Nashville, and then it gets to Knoxville, and it gets to Greenville. And Greenville's also hit very hard by it. Um, Jonesboro, for a minute, is optimistic, like, oh, well, as long as we you know, maintain our health standards, we should be okay. Uh, but, you know, you don't have germ theory yet, so the advice is, like, well, don't eat, like, certain fruits or vegetables, and you probably should be okay, because we're not quite sure what causes cholera yet at this point. Um, and then two gentlemen from Greenville who are trying to not get sick, get on the train, get off the depot at Jonesboro, but they're already sick. They already have cholera. And so they bring it to Jonesboro. Um, they go and stay with the Collins family on Spring Street, and Mrs. Collins takes them in. And she actually manages to nurse them back to health. And they go home. But soon after they leave, she dies from cholera. And then her husband dies from cholera. And the majority of the victims are actually going to be on Spring Street because it just kind of moves down that street and you have um we talked about the we found out about the floyd family who lost like four or five members of their family in that epidemic within a matter of weeks um now most people once they know it's here they do leave uh because you know cholera if you get away from the source of contamination you can't outrun it since it's not um you know airborne so most people leave they get out of town the town drops down to 100 people for about four weeks that summer and out of those 100 about 35 people die from cholera um, but like the paper stops publishing all the businesses are closed the people who stay are those who are sick those who just cannot leave family members who are caring for the sick and then a lot of the doctors stay because they've taken an oath um, to stay and, and, and care for those who are sick um, by the time you get to mid-august the epidemic has like you know it's run out of people to infect in Jonesboro and the water source has cleared itself up so you know the people come back and um, you know remember those who had died and there were a lot of people probably 15 to 20 were buried in a you know a mass grave at the, the back of the cemetery because they were dying very quickly during those weeks. The people who left town where did they go who did they stay with? Some stayed with families. We know a lot went to Clark's Creek. So Clark's Creek was a pretty big resort area at the time and kind of like a health spring. Um, so actually a lot of people who could went, went to Clark's Creek and waited it out. Is on your way towards Irwin, Tennessee. Uh, today it's all privately owned and completely overgrown and the hotel's long gone. But it used to be like a really like popular resort and uh, swimming hole and all that stuff. Other than the cemetery, what legacy did cholera leave here in Jonesboro? Yeah, so actually one of the doctors who stayed, Dr. Uh, William Robertson Severe, uh, started to realize things like, hey, if I'm like really rehydrating the people who have cholera, they've got a better chance of survival. Um, and he writes actually a treatise on Asiatic cholera after the epidemic's over. And it kind of starts to dance around germ theory, but it's not there quite yet, but it's going to influence other doctors who come after him. Let's move to the subject of the cemetery. 
Do you have any idea how many cholera victims are buried in this cemetery? Uh, not exactly. I mean, we think um, there's probably 15 to 20 people in the mass grave. Um, other than that, we don't really know of individual people who die who, here who died from cholera. We know some people who died of like typhoid. Um, tuberculosis is another big illness of the time. Scarlet fever. Um, a few of the people who died in, you know, the cholera epidemic were, we know they were buried elsewhere. Um, but for like the, like the general population, we believe that, you know, probably 15 to 20 of them are in that mass grave. And then others may have just been buried on family land at the time. Describe this spot where we are and why it was selected for a cemetery. Well, uh, you know, in 1803, you know, the town of Jonesboro had been here since 1779, and they decided they needed a public burial ground. This spot at the time wasn't, you know, being used. It's at the top of the hill. It overlooks town. It's not the best natural, like, farm or pasture land. So I think that really played a part in it as well for the town setting it up. And, of course, this predates... Um, any of Jonesboro's like really established churches. I mean, you had some of those congregations in town, but they're meeting elsewhere. Um, so the town was really like, okay, we're going to purchase this land from the Long family and establish it. Um, the oldest burial here actually predates the cemetery by two years, and that may have had something to do with it. Uh, Samuel Irvin, his family buried him here in like 1801. Um, so he was already here, and the cemetery kind of grew in stages. So you have the original part of the cemetery, which is when you first walk in straight back. And then the largest addition is going to be in the 1840s, and it's going to be the middle of the cemetery and like the back slope. And of course, that's part of where the cholera grave is. And then they do another addition in the late 1800s on, on down on the other side. So it grows in three stages, but I think maybe part of it was that they knew say, there was already a burial here, they needed land and it was, it was you know, uh, available. And it's, it is a perfect spot because it it's right up here at the top of the hill, so. How do you distinguish between a graveyard and a cemetery? Cemeteries are uh, usually public, like they're owned by like a, a town entity or a government entity of some kind, or sometimes like a, a foundation, but they're not usually attached to or associated with a specific church. So we say like graveyards or churchyard cemeteries are essentially, you know, they belong to that church. They're for parishioners of that church and their families, and the church is responsible for caring for them. But with this one, you know, it's always been the town. And then for a while, there was like a kind of private foundation that also took care of this. But, you know, it's mostly been the town of Jonesboro and the community that has cared for the cemetery. How was it determined and when was it determined that there is a mass burial site here? The paper, the Herald and Tribune, did a really good job of recording the epidemic as it moved through Jonesboro, and then especially with listing the name of those who died and when they died. Uh, but they really didn't say much about where people were buried. Now, a few other publications later said, oh, there's a mass grave in the cemetery at the bend or the right before the trench in the cemetery. And then it was just, it just kind of became lore. People were like, oh, yeah, there's a mass grave up there and so many people are buried in it. Um, and as soon as, you know, ground penetrating radar was available, available, people were up here looking for it. But nothing ever really, you know, showed more than, oh, there's one or two people buried here. So Gordon Edwards, our cemetery volunteer, uh, affectionately known as Graveyard Gordon, uh, has been determined to you know, prove whether or not there actually was a mass grave for years and years. And he had been out here with multiple people with G, uh, the ground penetrating radar looking and looking, couldn't find it, couldn't find it. But in March of this year, he said, hey, 
let's clear the land back here because at one time, because we have pictures from the cemetery at like the turn of the night of the 20th century, so like 1900, and there's like one tree back here. None of the trees are here. So this land had had trees on it, it had been covered with undergrowth. So he's like, let's clear this spot of land and try again. So this was cleared because you have to have clear land to do the, the GPR. And Dr. Robert Jones, who actually owns the Tilted Animal Tavern Sanctuary and the DeVault Tavern, um, came back out with his equipment in March of this year. And this area just lit up. Like there was no question there was multiple bodies. Like we said, it, perhaps 15 to 20. I mean, you're not gonna know without excavation. We don't recommend it. And they've been in there so long that might not, you know, you might not know anyhow. So, but it was very clear that there was multiple bodies here as opposed to elsewhere in the cemetery. And it fits with the description. It's in the bend, it's near the trench. And then we uh, were able to pair it with a picture actually from 1900. The picture was taken from the Lampson plot over there when one of the members of that family was buried. And if you look in the very back of the photo, there's this tiny wooden fence. And we just always assumed, oh, someone's grave's back there. But the fence matches perfectly with the layout of the mass grave. So we're like, they had a fence to show where the, the mass grave was. But it was a wooden fence. It fell down with time. People forgot, moved on with their lives. And then nature literally came up the hill and covered it over. So it just took some time to rediscover it. So it's really a good idea not to mess with this. Yes. No, we have a temporary marker now signifying what it is. And we're working on a more permanent marker that's going to list the names of those who died during the epidemic. Uh, out of that list, we only for sure know where two of those people are buried. Um, probably not all 30. The rest of the group is probably not all buried here. But we're going to list their names anyhow because they could be in there. Describe what we're seeing here. This looks out over College Hill Cemetery. And the back, so this is a very back slope of what we refer to as uh, Rocky Hill, which is the, the first name of the cemetery. Today, we just kind of all know them as the Old Jonesboro Cemetery. But this was a spot in the 1840s that was reserved for, uh, in term of the time, colored people. Like I said, you have both free and enslaved. And if you look at the slope, you can see it's kind of terraced. And we know there's people buried out here who their markers are sadly long gone. Now, the College Hill, uh, the Colored Person Cemetery Society established College Hill for the black community in the 1890s. So it was, uh, it, and it's pretty full cemetery too. The, up, the top part of College Hill is known as Evergreen and it's still actually actively for burials, but the rest of the cemetery is full, even though unfortunately you don't see a lot of markers. Um, and that just speaks to socioeconomic differences that led to markers that just didn't last as well through time. Um, and like the Rocky Hills closed too. But initially, you know, there were just trees straight through here. So you couldn't see from one cemetery to the other. So part of what we did was we removed the natural barrier so that you can see from one to the other. So we can tell that story. But I mean, it's one of the places in town where you can come and see that like history of segregation where you had, this was a white cemetery. That was the black cemetery. Um, but now being able to see from one to the other, we can tell their stories, you know, together because these people worked and lived in town together. Let's go over to another section and take a look at one of the most storied grave markers in Rocky Hill Cemetery. So this is the most iconic uh, tombstone in the cemetery. Uh, for a while I had its like own geocaching um, coordinates connected to it. I'm not sure if that's still active or not. Uh, but it is for uh, Cadet uh, William H. Cox. Now uh, his 
tombstone, leaves nothing to the imagination. Um, first with a very dramatic line, thus he perished. And then you've got this just carved into the marble, overturned boat, little hat floating, little oar floating, and the piece of the hands reaching out of the water. Um, leaves nothing to the imagination about how he died. Um, but as we've done like more research onto the Cox family, we've learned possibly how this tombstone came to be. So, you know, we do know by the time William died, he was an orphan, both of his parents had passed, and all of his other siblings, save for an older brother, had also died. So he had been left in the care of his uncle, um, John D. Cox, who was a big banker in this area. And, you know, he was already a teenager when he came into his uncle's care. Uh, not sure if it was his ideal to join the Naval Academy or was his uncle saying, I really don't know what to do with this teenage kid, go join the Naval Academy. But he was in the Naval Academy at Annapolis, and we know in a letter that the Cox family received, he drowned during a boating exercise uh, when his boat flipped over in the Naval Academy. He was young when he passed away. And of course, his body was brought back here to Jonesboro to be buried in the family plot. And we know that this is a naval headstone, like the Army, when the Navy sent them this marker. But it was up to the family to pick what was put on here. So people are like, why did his uncle pick that? And we're like, we don't know. We don't know if it's because he just didn't know about enough about his nephew besides this is how you died, sorry, or if there was some sort of bad blood. We're not sure, but I mean, there's a story behind this marker for some reason as to why his uncle picked this. Um, so the mystery exactly of why it was picked remains, but uh, you know, we do know that family unfortunately had a pretty tragic history um, even before his, his death. But I mean, it's, it just it strikes a picture. And when we're out here talking to people, we talk about like the symbolism of Victorian markers with the flowers and the lambs and the, you know, the Bibles and the weeping willows. So it's all very uh, symbolic, but this is the, this one very much a hundred percent tells a story. I mean, we haven't come across really anything much like it. Uh, you know, you have some of course that are well-documented around the world where people left funny things or like weird things on their markers, but we haven't come across too many pictures this way. I mean, it's just, I don't know, it's just the detail of it, especially with the hands sticking out of the water. It's like, oh, <laughs> that's a choice, <laughs> a deliberate choice. <laughs> and thanks for being our guest today on Vital Voices. Well, I really appreciate being here. Join us every Saturday morning at 7 and Sunday afternoon at 2 for Vital Voices. I'm Fred Sausman. <laughs>